This podcast is brought to you by, 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 by Civic Tech Innovation Network in partnership with Voice of Vet. This Jam Lab meetup, in collaboration with the Civic Tech Innovation Network, aims to unpack roles and strategies for promoting democracy and development during upcoming elections across Africa. Today's conversation focuses on unpacking roles and strategies for promoting democracy development during the upcoming elections across Africa. Tepo Chabalala, project coordinator for GemLab, finds out what the implications might be for the roles of media and various civic tech actors who are typically involved with trying to strengthen citizen engagement, increase transparency, accountability, and democratic governance. My name is Tepo Chabalala, and I head up the GemLab program here at Vist Journalism. Uh, joining me today, we have Kathy McGroby, uh, founder of Quote This Woman uh, in South Africa. We've got Ivan Pino, co-founder of Digital Woman Uganda. Dr. Caroline Keane, uh, senior lecturer at uh, De Montfort University. Uh, and finally, we have Daniel Odongo, who is the director of implementation at Ushahidi. For today's conversation, I'd like us to discuss and unpack the roles and strategies for promoting democracy uh, and development during the upcoming elections across Africa. You would know that there are about 13 national elections uh, and other municipal and local government elections taking place across the continent. But a lot of attention or eyes uh, are looking at the elections in Zambia and Ethiopia. And we know that the general elections um, in the Horn of Africa were supposed to have been held um, last year in August, but were delayed. Uh, due to COVID-19 pandemic and restrictions. Uh, Early this month, we learned from the National Electoral Board of Ethiopia that they postponed the voting once again from June 5th to apparently no more than three weeks later. So we'll see what happens uh, in the next couple of weeks and whether those elections do take place. We know that as well that there has been conflict uh, in the northern parts of um, Ethiopia. And we we understand from various media reports uh, that voting in some areas I will not take place um, during the elections. That's amongst one of the issues that I'd like us to chat about today. Uh, you know, what is the role of journalism and civic tech communities during a time like this and during elections? And today I want us to touch or center our conversation around three interlinking themes. The first being on how do we bring in marginalized and other voices to the fore? Um, a link to that is accountability. You know, how do we hold government and political leaders accountable? You know, how should journalism and civic take bridge effective communication between citizens and government? And finally, manipulations. What are the threats to democracy, the use of technology and tech platforms for information and spreading of fake news and misinformation? Kathy, I want to begin with you. You know, tell us a bit more about Quote This Woman, the work that you guys do in amplifying minority voices. So where are the women? One woman for four men, and that's if you're lucky. No matter which news media you turn to, global research has shown that on average, the words and the action of women really make the news headlines or news analysis. And it's worse in politics where men are overrepresented and one women are underrepresented by a ratio of seven or eight to one. And this doesn't take into account where women do make the news It's often with gender reinforcing qualifiers of a woman being someone's victim, someone's wife, or someone's mother. So what does this mean? That across the globe, news teams consistently amplify the voices, actions, and views of one part of the population at the expense of others. They allow the same old elite to continue to speak the same old language. And that's a problem because we all know that men and women experience life differently. When women's voices are absent in the the news, 
the realities are not made um, a matter of record and the issues that affect them remain invisible. For elections, this means that the difficult questions just continue to get ignored and perhaps they don't even get onto the manifesto. So Quote This Woman is a South African-based feminist nonprofit working to close this gender gap by helping journalists find the voices that belong to women and by training these voices to feel safe in the media. In fact, not just women. We've got a plus in our name because we are open beyond women to all voices that are marginalized in mainstream news, whether because of living with disability or because of sexual identity or gender orientation, poverty, education, rural location, or anything else. So how do we bring women experts and journalists together? We have a database of almost 500 leading women experts that we curate, mainly from Southern Africa, but increasingly from further into Africa. We make it really easy for journalists and newsrooms to access this, so that choosing a woman's voice becomes a no-brainer. There's no charge for experts to be on our database or for journalists to access it. And actually, we started just before the 2019 elections in South Africa, where you can see that there's... So if you're a journalist who wants to access the Quote This Woman database, there are two things you need to do. You need to go to our website and click Join Now. Fill in your name, email address, and telephone number and click the option journalist if you're a journalist or student if you're just a journalism student. And the second thing is go to newsletter and then sign up for media alerts. We send out a media alert every fortnight, letting you know who the contacts are on our database on trending news topics. So how can journalists and civic tech better amplify women's voices in African elections? From Quote This Woman's perspective, we believe that the voice that tells the story writes history. This is why the media is called the fourth estate, because journalists must ensure that they access a diversity of voices and narratives, that they do not skew, even unconsciously, which narratives are platformed and which aren't, which versions of history get remembered, and which ones disappear forever, forgotten and unrecorded. In the context of civic tech, the Financial Times in London uses a bot to check the ratio of men to women sources in the story and won't let that story through if there's no parity. Quote this woman would love help in getting an open source version of this kind of tech available for the media houses building relationships with. And finally, on this point, and we understand the pressures of time and money in newsrooms when we make this call, but please get as many eyes onto your stories before you post. And get those eyes checking the subbing too. A really switched on journalist can have their story ruined by poor subbing or artwork that sends a message that is counter to the story. To Mamanda Adichie's advice, the voice that tells the story, anticipate areas that you'll need experts for so that you can research them. And then reach out to organizations like Growth This Woman so that you can really make sure that you're getting the right sources. And then put in the sweat factor. Remember that there won't be as many women as men for you to interview. And you're going to have to work hard to really get great women to be um, your sources. And if you can, give them the mentoring and the coaching that they need so that they can become great sources in time. I want to ask you one question. In the context of amplification, why women's voices particularly? I think the best way to answer that question is to just understand that when women's voices aren't heard, their stories aren't reflected. And when their stories aren't reflected, history is going to be written in a way that isn't going to tell what really happened. We know that there are women out there whose lived experiences are 
absolutely critical to changing the way democracy moves forward. And we know that none of this is, is being reflected in news. None of this is going forward into policy. This just isn't changing. You know, it's not just in Africa, but across the world, so many so many countries are unhappy with their governments and so many countries are still bringing into power governments that they continue to be unhappy with. To a certain extent, there isn't amplification of the stories and the circumstances that need to be brought to the fore. When women's voices are brought to the fore in news, we know that news is different. It's not necessarily better, but it's different. And that difference is really important. On that point, I want to come to Ivan. Uganda had a rather messy election um, earlier this year. Let's start by you telling us what you are doing as Digital Women Uganda in helping communities get in line with new technologies, um, especially those in rural areas, you know, to be able to participate in online spaces. We, we're basically looking at women and girls in the rural areas. When you look at their percentage of participation in the online spaces, it's almost not there. And if they even get there, they are bullied by the other sex. So we are trying to get a strong inclusion of these women in the online space and then also help them on how to be safe when they are there. So what we did in Uganda, we just concluded an election, which was a dub scientific election. So basically it was run in the online spaces with the digital tools and then gadgets. But then the women were not there. Even those in politics couldn't participate. They either don't have the skills to participate or they don't have the monies to buy these gadgets to participate. So we came into this space so that we can actually skill them and also provide them with all they need, the skills and then the gadgets, so that they can be meaningfully participating in this whole election. So that is why we actually formed Digital Woman Uganda. So our niche is around women and, and girls. When it came to the journalists, uh, they didn't have the skills to report their stories on the online platforms. So we trained them and then also we got their stories to run on different platforms that uh, we are part of so that uh, these stories can actually be read and then maybe they could go out and then be seen. So that is what we are actually doing. And then uh, we've innovated so many tools online. Like uh, we have a, a short code, which is toll free. Uh, women can actually interact with us with different leaders in the online spaces for free of charge. And then uh, we, we also have an internet radio. We talk to them. But then uh, you should know that these are rural women. So how can they afford internet? So we have a model around that. It's called a village agent model. So we work with uh, different uh, women groups in the villages. They gather in uh, maybe in groups of 35, and then uh, we can actually install our different equipment and then uh, churn out the content to them, whatever they want to learn about digital literacy, how they can get on the internet, how they can be safe. Because uh, this model came in handy during the COVID times. We couldn't move. We couldn't also gather some people. So we, with uh, different uh, partners, we've had our content uploaded onto offline devices. And then we've supplied to the women in the rural areas so that they can continue with these tips wherever they are. Can you share some of the skills that you teach? Uh, the women can't even uh, send a text message, for instance. All they know is to receive. You can send them maybe mobile money, but they cannot even withdraw that mobile money off their phone. They may not even know they've actually received money onto their mobile phone. So these are some of the lessons that we take them through. How to read a message, how to text a message, how to be safe online, those small, small, small skills. How to save a contact, someone's contact. You see, how to dial, 
they don't know how to dial a phone number of their mobile phone. So those are some of the lessons that uh, we take them through. And those uh, who are a little bit literate, we actually now, uh, we have uh, internet lessons on how to be safe. Once women are online, they are harassed. They're either followed, they're bullied, they are, there is body shaming. So we teach them on how to be safe online. So those are some of the lessons that we, that we, we interact with them. How do women and minority groups be safe online? What can they do? Practical steps or skills? It starts with them. They need to talk to each other. So we tell them, if at all you're bullied, ask for help from your friend. Secondly, there are things that you're not supposed to do while you're online. Like you cannot share maybe your nude photos with someone else because it will come back to haunt you. They should have a password on their gadget. So these are small, small security tips that we actually teach them so that they can actually be safe online. And if at all they are bullied, we actually give them an, a platform whereby they can contact us remotely so that uh, we can actually also help them. We have a, a, an SMS platform. We advise them to send uh, a short code, or uh, a text message or a short code in a language that they understand because most of them don't know English. So we advise them kindly use the language that you understand or fall back to our village agent model who will then get back to us and then we shall actually give them uh, some support, especially when it comes to the bullies. So we take them through counseling and then on how to be safe the, the next time they're online. How are civic tech um, and community, communities, especially journalists, are adapting to new tech, especially during elections? Um, during this time of COVID-19 and restrictions? Uh, it was quite tricky for us in Uganda, especially the journalists. Remember, we had an internet shutdown. It was so hard to disseminate this information by, uh, by the journalists to wherever it was supposed to go. And then also some journalists in the rural areas don't know how to use these platforms. So we empower these, these journalists, uh, we skill them. And then also we are using their stories, we pick their stories, and then uh, we disseminate their stories through the different channels that uh, we belong to. But most importantly, how we are helping them is uh, we are teaching them on how to tell a story in the digital spaces. This is not maybe mainstream media. These are just platforms that, uh, that are set up by different organizations. So we group them into groups and then uh, we teach them on, on the different technologies that they can use to disseminate their information. And then uh, we get them uh, digitally literate enough to actually use them because most of them don't know them. And COVID-19 took them by speed. They are really taking their time, they're trying their time to adapt to these technologies so that uh, they can actually participate in, the, in their career. I'm interested in knowing whether the work you do looks at the whole family, or do you do work about making sure that there's equal access to that cell phone? Yeah, that, uh, that was a challenging uh, point for us, especially when we rolled out the model into the refugee settlement. Most uh, mm -hmm. refugee homesteads didn't have cell phones. So what we did, we partnered with, uh, with uh, Radio Talk. Uh, it is basically an organization that has a tool. It is a radio that can record content. Because uh, men are bullies, basically, he might have a radio uh, or he might have a, a phone, but then he cannot use it with the other members. So what we do, we've partnered with these other people to actually give uh, different uh, homesteads these radios or phones. Secondly, how we've managed that is that uh, through our village agent model, because we work with the villagers themselves, especially the women, they create groups together. And now these groups, we actually supply the equipments that they need so that they can facilitate the training. So the women gather together and then uh, they can actually listen to the content that uh, we are trying to broadcast to them. Carolyn, I want to come in and if you can expand more on that and also touch on how journalism and civic tech um, can bridge effective communication you know, between citizens and governments. 
So if you think of, um, you know, when, you, when a, a citizen is obviously experiencing a problem, they'll go and report it to um, a, a service delivery officer or government. And these will remain as individual reports, sometimes undisclosed, and you don't know what's, what's going on in relation to progress being made around that issue. Then you have civic action on the other hand, and this will be our civil society organizations, our activists who are trying to gather people together to to collectively to address an issue or a challenge that they're experiencing. Um, but the problem is these are separate. So we need to try and merge these together to get those individual voices heard, but, but also to um, also support um, collective action that's taken um, by our civil society organizations. Now, the idea of, you know, MobiSAM, which is the program that I'm running, is to actually bring these voices together on a public platform. We use technology, we use mobile phones, and you have to have the internet. But we also have to take into consideration that civic tech has to be more holistic than that, and where we have to incorporate other views. So this is an example of the kind of data that's um, collected on uh, an issue that is experienced in service delivery. And it's just quite a coincidence that in Grahamstown, Makanda now, um, I don't know if you've been following the news, but there's definitely been an issue. Citizens and residents are just tired and the Taxi Association and different activists have come together to protest against the service delivery in Grahamstown. It's been mounting over many years and now it's kind of es escalated. It'd be at really problematic levels. So we have this application that actually is running. Um, it started in 2012 and has been running in various versions and ways um, up to today. And we still are recording the issues that are emerging. Clearly, water is a main issue because of the old infrastructure and the burst pipes that are continuing and the water that has been shut many, many, many times, followed by sanitation and electricity. At least now, the people who are using this application actually have access to this kind of information that's collated from different individual citizens whether it's directly through someone who uses the, the system or through an, an intermediary who reports on behalf of a citizen. We still have the very same problems that are emerging. So what's going on? Why aren't people actually making use of data? I won't go into too much detail. We also have another project which actually emerged from MobiSAM called MobiSafades. And this one is actually implemented in six different countries and focuses on access to adolescent sexual reproductive health because it was becoming a problem in, in sub-Saharan Africa around the re-emergence of HIV and numbers increasing amongst adolescent youth and they're taken for granted. So government kept on asking, well, where's the evidence? So we work with SAFES, the NGO, who have implemented a program for transforming lives. So we, we, it has the same model as MobiSAM. We're still collecting data around issues. So where, what is the role of journalists? When we talk about citizen engagement, we have this thing called the citizen ladder, and I'm not sure how many people are very familiar with it, whereby with civic tech, you start off by providing information, move up to participation, um, and then collaboration and empowerment. Then in, in, in this particular case, most civic tech tends to focus on information and participation. What, what, what happens after that? How can we lead to more collaboration and empowerment amongst our citizens? And this is where we need our journalists to actually act as facilitators to empower citizens and enable them to see the value in the data that they have access to. So um, when you're looking at the role of journalism, we're, we're looking at one spectrum, one spectrum is facilitating and then there's gatekeeping. Typically, traditional journalism would focus on the gatekeeping element, you know, where it's very much story driven and it's about, you know, providing um, residents or citizens with, with publicly relevant information, but they kind of determine what is publicly relevant. Then on the other spectrum, we look at facilitating, whereby it's more 
empowering citizens, to enable them to see the value of the data that they have access to. And this may be in the form of summarizing key elements of the data or encouraging citizens to go and access that data themselves in summarized way or understanding the value that they can get out of that data. So the, the journalists in this case, you will see in the middle is facilitator, experimenter, translator, normalizer. Normalizer is typically what we have for, for our traditional journalist uh, journalistic role. And then the facilitator on the other spectrum is what we would like to start seeing uh, when our journalists start to use uh, civic tech and data that is being available so that people can realize that change does happen with the data that is accessible and available to them. How do we make sure that journalists are getting the data, can read the data and understand the data to be able to report on it? First of all, number one, we want journalists to see there is data that's available. And there are many, many civic tech programs that are actually coming up, especially in South Africa. You know, I think South Africa is leading in that as well as East Africa. What do you need from us? So this is the data we have available. What do you need? So typically with journalism, it's been story driven, but what about data driven? Are you seeing some warning elements that are coming from the data around access to basic services that have not been uh, communicated effectively? So what do you need? So we are the civic tech specialists. So we are not specialized as a journalist would be in actually reaching in the public, we would then work with you to, gen to generate those key reports that you need and to, to develop applications based on your needs. There needs to be this complementary relationship between journalists and civic technologists around what is relevant and what is needed by the public. On top of that, journalists are also key in pointing us to key data sets that we can access and manipulate and create applications or mobile applications from it to provide journalists with access to information. But again, we're not only focusing on the journalist here. We also want the citizen to sort of be their own kind of journalist in the community, to be able to engage with the data that they have access to and create stories as well as well from that as engaging with other journalists who publish more on it. Should civic tech platforms reach out to news organizations when they see warnings from the data they're seeing they should and they are. <laughs> they actually are. Um, I mean, if you follow Open Up, I don't know if you know Open Up as an organization. I mean, there's municipal money and there's another one they're actually working on um, now, especially on election. Um, they really want to provide access to journalists around this. And the, the challenge is to kind of get buy-in from newsrooms, from journalists as well but also the issue of the skill gap. So they've actually done quite a lot in trying to summarize the data and make it accessible, but to try and analyze and make sense of it, there are still key skills that are non-existent amongst our journalists today. So, you know, there are various programs that can be implemented to train journalists for specific civic tech applications. And they are there, they're they are trying, you know, it's just about grabbing interest and buying from them to see the value in the data that the data is producing. Daniel, I want to come to you quickly uh, in the interest of time. Um, can you tell us about the work that you do at Ushahidi and, and how can policymakers leverage civic tech um, to improve their responses to um, election disinformation and voter suppression? Ushahidi is a Swahili word that means testimony. We are a company born out of the post-election in uh, 2008 after the general election. Uh, the, the results were primarily contested as we see the norm in many countries today. And the founders at Ushahidi created a platform for people to be able to share their first-hand experiences uh, via text, email, SMS, and web. And to date, this platform has enabled, you know, ordinary citizens to be able to document violence in their communities, uh, share information globally, and where possible even feed into, you know, domestic and international investigations uh, towards accountability for different crimes. And who are we today? We're a global non-profit tech company that aims to provide people with equal access 
to take resources uh, that they need to solve problems in their communities and uh, be able to enact social change effectively. Uh, we are an open source tech tool that's easy to understand and can easily be used to respond to critical events quickly. The tools, you know, that raise the voices of marginalized groups who tend to be left out of meaningful conversations uh, help them to be able to better respond. And I'm talking about decision makers now be able to respond to them, make decisions that are fully representative of the needs of their communities. And the Oshaidi tool has been used more than uh, 160,000 times in more than 160 countries across various categories of social impact, uh, including crisis response, human rights protection, uh, good governance, and relevant to our discussion today would be integrity in elections, actually. So when you speak about how policymakers can leverage civic tech to improve their response to election disinformation and voter suppression. I think I'd just like to also resound a reminder to policymakers that they're actually, you know, they're duty bearers to the rights holders who are affected by their decisions and actions. Briefly, I can just say, uh, one, there needs to be an increase in participation in electoral processes. There needs to be, you know, broad civic education and voter education. Uh, we need to be able to counter misinformation, which is sporadic today, and how can tech work with support these processes, uh, we can be able to enhance credible and reliable information regarding the electoral and political processes. Uh, we can be able to co-create and deploy scalable and data-driven campaigns, both on social media and print, to enable citizens better understand their role and actually rights in electoral processes. Uh, we can also be able to map and improve the feedback loop on our knowledge gaps have been identified amongst different uh, groups of people in democratic processes. A question for you, how do we encourage participation? Participation, I think about it in two ways. One, by breaking down the silos that exist. I mean, typically, even governments are trying to make sure people participate in elections. But if this information doesn't trickle down to those who need it the most, then, I mean, there's a blocker and that, that hinders the participation. But then two, the tools that we develop really need to be low-tech. I really like what Ivan shared before saying that, you know, their tool is accessible in all forms of ways, you know. Uh, one, just even training them how to use, uh, to be able to text, send a message, uh, being able to use, you know, a feature phone. It's taken for granted that when people are in low-tech communities, throw at them a feature phone, but they don't even know how to dial the keywords on that device. And at Ushahidi, we've been able to, you know, go the extra mile to even work with telcos to make sure that social services that are being, you know, accessed through our platform, we can easily integrate and be able to reach them using toll-free uh, platforms. Uh, that removes a significant gateway to, to their access. How do you encourage, especially the women um, in rural areas, to participate in times of elections and so that their voices can be heard? We've, uh, we've worked with, uh, with women in different fields or different areas, especially agriculture. So how we encourage them is that we bring experts, uh, like maybe journalists, and then uh, we bring experts maybe in their fields like agriculture. They speak to them about policies, that uh, their voice should be counted, if at all they need to be included in the budget. In facilitating them with these platforms and then skilling them, and then even giving them maybe uh, a feature phone, we indirectly influence them to participate in the election. Because uh, at the end of it all, if at all they don't participate in the election, different people will actually choose leaders for them. These people make sure that they, they speak to them and then make them known that their voices actually count in these elections if they want to basically improve their lives in their home state. Kathy, I want a link to that. I'm interested to understand and how you did it when you when you started Quote This Woman in, before the 2019 elections in Africa. 
and what are the lessons learned in encouraging women to participate in the media and make their voices heard? What lessons did you learn in 2019 that can still be implemented in 2021? I mean, absolutely. When we started to quote this woman, um, we were very naive. We thought that our biggest barrier that we were going to or obstacle was going to be journalists we thought journalists absolutely weren't interested in quoting women um, and that there were just going to be so many women who were going to flock onto our database and actually it was the other way around journalists by not were so keen to have access to this resource called the Quote This Woman database. And experts were so reluctant to join our database because of so many factors that we probably don't have time to go into now. So there was persistence. It took a lot of one-on-one action, sitting and talking to experts to convince them to take that step to join our database. We've got a very comprehensive Q&A about what it means to be a part of our database. And then we've realized that we've had to commit to media training. Um, We've got a program called Women Own the Spotlight, where we spend a lot of time working with women experts. Um, So we've done a lot of media training. And we found it's been a ripple effect. What we've found is that once someone is on our database, they've recommended someone else. So two years ago, we launched with only 40 names on our database, and now we've got 500 names. So it's grown. Um, It can happen. And I'm also interested in our countries on the continent, we have various languages. How do we include those who don't speak English? when it's like a second language for many people? On our database, we ask people what language they are interested in being interviewed in, and we've got that category. So so we say, please say what language you'd like to be interviewed in. Um, And we believe that it's important that we have those opportunities for people to be interviewed in whatever language they want to. That's something that journalists just have to get their head around, that an interview might take longer, and that not every expert is somebody who speaks like they've gone to a private school or a university overseas. Not every expert is somebody who's got a degree. Um, an expert might be somebody who has run an NGO. An expert might be somebody who is an activist in a community and really understands what's happening in a, in a community. And we need huge paradigm shifts in terms of who deserves to have a microphone put in front of them and a spotlight shone onto them and have their voice amplified. And that's why things like databases of experts can make a huge difference. Once somebody is on a database and uh, tagged as an expert, it's amazing how journalists just accept that person. So we believe that Quote has actually been able to make quite fundamental shifts, not only in terms of who, gets interviewed, but also in terms of what issues get platformed, because what makes the news is as important around elections as who they interview to write about those issues. I think it's just important to note that whose voices do actually listen to. And I think that the media plays a big role in determining setting the agenda, really. And I think they need to be more uh, mindful about who uh, they actually place the spotlight on. I think I like what Kathy does the organization just trying to identify especially voices of women who, who deserve the spotlight. A platform like MobiSam, would it be accessible in different languages? For example, if my grandmother is living in the rural areas, she can't speak English. Can she access the platform? Can she use it? How do we help her if she can't? 
in some places, people do prefer a platform to be in their language, and in some places, they don't. Different factors to take into consideration. But the important thing, though, is you should not just rely on technology as the only thing to look to. You know, as when you're looking at a civic tech program, usually the civic tech specialists, your computer scientists and so on that implement these, and they focus on the technology more than anything else. But, I mean, you have to think of it holistically. Our project would not work at all if we didn't have certain individuals on the ground, if we didn't have intermediaries, if we didn't have intermediaries, we didn't have ward councillors, we didn't have it, and so on and so forth. And you need to actually have these people who actually act on behalf of individuals to report on, on certain issues that they cannot do so themselves. Or, you know, and the idea as well of trying to make it as open as possible to report in a particular language and make it easily user friendly in the sense that it's easier to understand what you need to report on when you're reporting on a service delivery issue. So, yeah, I wouldn't have an exact answer, yes or no, here because it will definitely vary with different contexts. Daniel, Ushahidi is available in 160 countries. Is it available in various languages for those respective countries, or is it still only in English and Swahili? So Haiti is currently available in more than 15 languages, That and this, this is mostly attributed to our community. And being an open source platform, we've opened up our language sets, meaning anyone who speaks any language in the world can translate to Haiti into their language and be able to use it in their language. So we've opened it up, and I think that's just one of the layers to which we've extended access to the people in the platform. When you are doing the skills training, are you doing it in a language they understand? When you bring the radio programs linked to the question that Sam asked as well, are you linking it to an understandable language for the community and adapting the, the, the content um, to those communities? You know, when you're building tools, I've seen so many tools, innovators build tools without a, an inclusion of the end users. There is a, there is a problem in Chaka. I think it's a, it is a digital literacy. And then uh, there's this organization that is sending mobile money to these uh, refugees. But the refugees are not literate enough. They don't even know that they've actually been sent money. So what we did is that uh, we had to first go on ground. We lived with the refugees for two weeks to understand firsthand the problem. We realized that uh, they were actually speaking a different Kiswahili. We knew it was Kiswahili, but then when we, we went on ground, we realized that it is Congolese Kiswahili. It's not even spoken in Uganda. It's not spoken in Kenya. It's not spoken in Tanzania. Now, just imagine if at all we just sat back in Kampala and then built a tool and then deployed it there. It will totally fail. So it is always imperative, very, very strong for innovators to build tools with an inclusion of the end users. So we built a tool that speaks their language and it's working perfectly well. Just imagine if at all we had it been a field trip, would have failed them. And that's what you guys did as well, Kathy, at, at Quote This Woman. You know, you built a tool. I know when you when you when you started on the Jamla program, you wanted to build an app, but that's then right. you quickly pivoted um to something else. Mm. Tell us about Absolutely. that thinking. So when we started, we wanted to build an app because we thought that um, it was something that would be really an really easy interface that experts could use and journalists could use. And we got great advice, in fact, from Jam Lab saying, just understand your audience first before you invest in tech. And we probably became the most low-tech program on a media tech project because we understood like we didn't have enough experts buying into us for us to invest in building an app. So yeah, it was a quick pivot and it was a pivot that saved us. We probably would have gone bang by now if we'd invested in building an app. Um, in fact, we only gave up our incredibly low-tech Google spreadsheet about a month ago. So we were incredibly lucky that we didn't, we didn't go the way of an app. 
and and you know we've got three minutes left and i want to get all of your advice um the panelists what is your advice for somebody who's trying to contribute in the space whoever tells the story writes history never forget that i think two things um you know first looking at the the role of the journalist to start looking at what is out there there's so many answers too many unanswered questions especially localized information and localized data look a bit more at what's out there and start to promote civic tech a bit more. Secondly, I also want to speak to not underestimating what our citizens in rural areas can do. Um, I've been working in this area for for a a long time in rural areas. It's almost always the case that it's a default, that people cannot use certain technologies. And I think people underestimate that quite a lot. So um, look at opportunities, look at what has worked, uh, and don't focus on what continues to remain a gap forever. I'll start with the basic principle of nothing for us without us. So the only way to be aware about what's actually going on on ground when you are wanting to build tools is to actually go on ground and immerse yourself in the day-to-day lives people you're building for. Okay, uh, my advice is that uh, there is a saying in South Africa, I think it's a saying or a word, but it's called Ubuntu. You realize that uh, COVID-19 has reshaped the way we, we live, we work, and then we earn money. There are societies that we are actually living out as civic tech innovators. How can we innovate with an inclusion of even those marginalized societies in the rural areas so let us have them inclusive but all we innovate is you know for the rural people for the rural folks let's move away from the towns and let's go deep down with these people uh, ladies and gentlemen that's all we have for today um it went by very quickly and there were still some unanswered questions that i still have thank you so much to our panelists kathy caroline daniel and ivan for all your insights i've learned a lot and i hope you as um, an attendee have learned a lot um through this conversation I'd like to bring your attention to our fourth and final um, JamLab meetup in collaboration with the Civic Tech Innovation Network. In a couple of weeks' time, we'll be looking at tips and strategies to finance and monetize your civic platforms or your journalism startup in Africa. So do please join us for that conversation taking place on June 24th. From myself and the team uh, from Civic Tech and JamLab, it's been a great afternoon. Have a great week. Thank you so much to Tepo and all the panelists for this insightful conversation. Visit jamlab.africa or find us on all social media platforms at Jamlab Africa to continue or share your ideas on how we can take this conversation forward. You'll find more details on the next conversation on our website, jamlab.africa. This podcast was brought to you by Civic Tech Innovation Network in partnership with Voice of Vets.